Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you will find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Frank. like church, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, that's a slide. Okay, well, here we go. Mm, the guy is speaking there like this. Is that right? Yeah, good. Hi, everyone. My name is Greg, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Greg. And I always like to start out by asking uh, God... God of my understanding, to uh, join us. And I say, God, come to my assistance. Oh, Gus, make haste to help me. Uh, There are so many things, you know, when you think about when you have a a couple of months to kind of synthesize what you like to say, uh, but to really follow the simple format of, you know, what it was like, what happened, and uh, what it's like today. I came into OA in 1976, July. I was 26 years old, and that's basically six years after high school. And I didn't have a weight problem until those years after high school. And I found out that the reason why I had a weight problem is because uh, I I visited things like the Golden Rainbow Room, the new French restaurant, Jacques in the Box, (laughs) the Taco Dingaling, and... uh, and, of course, the Prick House. Uh, that's Darwinus Mitzel. And, uh, and so, I, Noggles, Pup and Taco. I mean, we had a flurry of these stop-and-go, you know, 7-Eleven. Uh, you could stop on every street corner and pick up a snack. Now, up until this time, I lived, you know, with my family. Now, you, women, you're going to love this because uh, I'm a man male, in a family of nine women. Nine women. I have six sisters. My mom and grandma and a a little female dog named Betsy. And and I lived this way, you know, my entire uh, childhood. Uh, You you know, my dad was away uh, basically uh, providing for all of those mouths, clothing and and food and, and shelter. And uh, so isolation for me was easy. You know, I, I, I just remained to myself. And uh, one of the things that happened because of that isolation was I, I tended to um, dive into the arts. You know, like music and uh, uh, art. And uh, that would be, you know, when we did the, the clay things, you know, in school we made the clay ashtrays you know, in kindergarten. And then we progressed and we did the clay, you know, finger handprint. And uh, moving on to uh, the statuary age, you know, when you bought those white blanks and you painted them all up and uh, then you sold them or used them for lamps or whatever. And uh, we went from there to the uh, leaded glass age, you know, uh, making things, drawing hit on the piano for a while. 
So I had all of these activities which really enriched my life, but I, I, I was basically alone. And uh, I carried that sense of accomplishment forward. Now, I, I did go and um, uh, was educated by the nuns. So, you know, uh, once again, there was not a lot of male influence in my life. Uh, so I went to an all-boys Catholic high school. And that's where I learned about football and all of those other things. Um, it was good. I enjoyed that. And the fraternity of brotherhood. So, when I came to OA, having gained about 30 or 40 pounds, at the suggestion of my, my father and his qualifier at the time, my dad left my family and married his uh, qualifier, and uh, needless to say, I was full of resentment at her, at him, and uh, carried that with me for a long, long time. Uh, the thing that I, I found about that relationship was going to OA at that time, we didn't have a lot of literature, you know. Uh, I showed up at a meeting and I was, I figured that I would get the diet, you know, because that's why I showed up. I wanted the diet and I wanted either the gray sheet or the orange sheet. And I said, okay, if you would just point me to the person who has the diet, I'll get that diet and then I'll be out of here because I, and they said, well, listen, that guy is not here today. And, and his name is Bill. And what you need to do is come back next week and I'm sure he'll have it. So I came back the following week and lo and behold, they said, yes, we do have the orange sheet, but we're all out. So, what you, if you would come back the following week, we'll get you the orange sheet, and maybe we'll even have the gray sheet with you. And during these little meetings, I began to hear things like, rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Remember, I was educated on, on the big book. And I listened to those words at the meeting, and I, gosh, oh my gosh, I like those words. But, guess what? I never opened the book. I never did the 12 and 12. No, I never worked the steps. But yet, I stayed within the fellowship of OA for 10 to 12 years. And you think, wow, well, what, what, you know, well, what did you... Well, I just hung around. Because I liked the fellowship coming from this age of isolation. Okay? Then when I got into high school, I was given a little part in a play. And that sense of drama, that sense of control, that sense of letting an audience, getting them to follow along and laugh and respond, bit me. Bit me hard. And I became an actor for 30, 35 years. And I traveled. Now get this. Here I am, getting heavier, and I'm getting more roles because I'm heavy. And I like the idea of being heavy because now I get to play Paul Staff, I get to play Toby Belch, I get to play Bottom, I get to play the Fry and R&J. You know, my life is really rich. Except for the fact that I'm still isolated. You know, my isolation... I was happy on the outside, but dying on the inside. 
what it was like. All of us like to be recognized, do we not? I mean, we like to be the center of attention. I mean, who of us doesn't like to be the center of attention? And so, what I did was I went to my favorite holding pattern restaurant at Fullerton Airport. And I would show up every day at noon. And it's nice to be recognized by the waitress who brings you your scoop of tuna fish, two right crisp packets, your large iced tea sidecar lemon. No need to order. She just sees the big guy. She knows what she's supposed to do. Right? And, and at this particular time in the restaurant, we were seated New York style. Now, I, 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 I wanted to know, what, what's the difference between New York style and Seattle style? Or, you know, West L.A. style, you know? But what it meant is that you just sat at the same table with strangers. And I thought, wow, that's, that's okay, I guess. So I'm sitting there with four, you know, three other guys, and the waitress brings me my tuna fish, my rye crisp, my iced tea, sidecar lemon. I put my newspaper down, and I'm eating my little, little, you know, spoonful at a time, chewing it and swallowing it. And the guy across the way from me reaches down and takes a packet of rye crisp, opens it up, and proceeds to chunch and munch and munch and munch and munch and munch one of my rye crisp. Now, I don't know about you, but when I diet, I become extremely territorial. <laughs> I have visions of apocalypse now. You know, with those Brahma bulls splaying blood everywhere. You know what I mean? I've got these images and this rage going into me, this sense of entitlement. How dare this guy? I'm surrounded by thieves, rogues, vagabonds, you know? And all of a sudden, I say to myself, it's okay on the outside. And I just reached down and took it and started to eat it. I'll be damned if he didn't take the next packet, open it up, get a cracker, and then get up and leave. And there I am in my stupor of anger. I'm thinking, whoa, am I going to have a story to tell tonight? And oh, hey, you know? And everything else. And I gulp down the rest of my, my tuna fish, my iced tea, and I pick up my newspaper Underneath my newspaper were my two packets of rye crisp. I had been eating his. So, here goes, we're all familiar with it, the shame spiral, right? I'm less than, oh my God, how could I possibly have done this? So, eventually I went to Bill and I said, Bill, Remember that day that we were seated at the table? We didn't know each other. And I reached out and took your cracker and ate it. Why didn't you say anything? He said, well, you're a big man. <laughs> and I saw you eating that little skimpy helping of tuna fish. And I thought, well, I'm willing to share. Go for it. <laughs> People think about food differently than I do. And and that's that's just something that I've had to contend with. The way I process information is not necessarily the way it is in reality. And I come to OA, and I stayed with OA over all of these years, because somewhere along the line, I tried to get honest. I tried to get honest. It's difficult for me. It's still difficult for me today. What happened? Well, I have been blessed 
every step of the way. God has been in charge. There's never been a doubt in my mind that God is not in charge. And, you know, when you, when you weigh 346 pounds, because I, I lost 100 pounds and then I gained 100 pounds plus. And I came waltzing through the doors of OA thinking, wow, look at it, aren't I great? I've lost all this weight. Fantastic. Only to come back through the doors and say, yeah, I'm back. I'm back. Yeah, I've been beaten. My self-will has really, you know, my research project did not turn out well this time. And although I was excited about being an actor and working, I thought, my God, I can't be doing this because all my big buddies are dying. They're dropping like flies. Heart attacks, diabetes, limbs are being removed. I'm thinking, no, I can't be doing this. 1990, I saw a person that I had seen maybe six, eight months prior. And when I saw her, I just said, I want what she has. There is no question in my mind, I want what she has. And I asked her, how did you do it? She said, well, I had the ruin wide bypass surgery. Remember, it's only a tool. I said, okay. God, please, in, the, in, the, in your time, may I have the ruin my bypass surgery. Seventeen years later, God saw fit to give me the ruin my bypass surgery. So, on September the 4th, 2007, I had the surgery. My first consultation for that surgery was August the 20th. 2007, 14 days prior. Now, many of you who are in the process of having surgery or lap band or whatever, that's highly unheard of. And the only reason why I was able to do that is because I had a psych evaluation scheduled for an unknown reason in between. And so I got the clear clearance for my psych, clearance for uh, uh, the assigned stress test, all that stuff. Did I know what I was doing? Not at all. I just wanted what that woman had. That sense of joy in her life. So, over the course of uh, uh, eight months, I lost all the weight. I'm going to back up now, just one second, and say, one of the things I wanted to do for my community was to give my community, a sense of theater. I wanted to give back to my community that which enriched my life. I wanted to give them a theater. But not just any theater. It had to be dinner theater. Right? So I got a dinner theater going in my community. I took the money that I had, about 250000 I put it into this building, got the company going, got it running for two and a half years, and the city would not help. Talk about resentment. And I said, God, I can't be doing this. And God says, fine. God took it away. (laughs) There I was, standing in the middle, and the sheriff was locking doors, and people were scavenging, and I just said, I'm helpless. I can't do anything about this. So I said, God, what is it that you want me to do? I have no job. I have no place to live. I have no 
no transportation, and nothing on the horizon that says that there might be hope. And I'd always imagined myself being the poet-priest. I think, I wonder if this is not a good time to go visit that again. So I put an ad on Vocations Anonymous on a Sunday night. Monday, I had 27 hits. Wednesday, Wednesday, I got off the plane in Louisville, Kentucky, and I visited the Abbey of Gethsemane, home of Thomas Merton. And here I am at 346, walking around with the brothers in this beautiful, beautiful monastery. Gorgeous. And I'm thinking that I'm going to be working in the fruitcake, cheese, and fudge departments. Right? (laughs) Why not? That's what we do. That's our industry, fruitcake, cheese, and fudge. And Brother Robert said, no, 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 I have a special project for you and Stephen King. Not the writer, just a kid who had the name of Stephen King from Lexington. And we got in the old Chevy truck and we drove around the, the grounds and through the woods. And eventually we came through a clearing. And in that clearing was this little brick house. And I said, Brother Robert, is this Merton's Hermitage? He goes, yeah. And I thought, wow, wow. Here I am. Did I know what Merton's Hermitage was about? No. Did I ever read Seven Story Mountain? No. But boy, I had the sense of some kind of enthusiasm of arriving in a very, very sacred place. You know, you know something, you, you, can, you know what it is, but you can't really verbalize it. And so I got out of the, the truck, and Stephen and I painted the inside of the kitchen, the bathroom, and the chapel a robin egg blue. And I spent three days there. And then I came home after a week's stay. And on and off for about a year, I lived in Louisville, Kentucky, at the Abbey Gethsemane. In the last stay, at 346 pounds, I fell in the cheese factory. Broke, nearly, my leg. And I said, you know, guys, I need to go home. And I don't know why, but I just need to go home. They said, yeah, you sure do, because we're not going to take care of you. And I uh, used my insurance and all that kind of stuff. And that's when I said to myself, God, if at all possible, please give me the surgery to lose the weight before I have the knee surgery. Because I can't recover with that weight. So on September the 4th, 2007, I returned, had the surgery, and at that time took care of five men in my family. I was the hospice person for my uh, brother-in-law, my dad, who died in August. Had the memorial service the 18th of August, when I had the consultation on the 20th. And then I have my godfather. And my godfather, at 87, lived in the house in Long Beach. And he was just so vibrant and, you know, but he was going blind. And uh, he had cancer. And uh, when I arrived home from Gethsemane, we found that he had been on the floor of his bathroom for 24 hours. Say. Carl, he can't live alone anymore. So I was actually jammed down his throat. I actually became his health provider and stayed with him until his death in March of 2008. March 2008, I've lost all my weight. I now weigh 168 from 346. 
I could not have done that had I not had a change of living space. Why? Because Carl ate like a bird about 15 spoonfuls of food a day. And that's what I had to do to maintain my surgery, my, my, my nutrition and surgery recovery. And I attribute that my success was directly linked because of my change in venue, my change of where I lived. After the surgery, I try to maintain some kind of uh, support within the group at SC, you know, post-bariatric. And it just, it just, you know, no matter what I did, it, it just didn't. So I knew in the back of my head that maybe a return to OA wouldn't be a bad idea. Why? Well, maybe I could really learn something this time. But I'm not sure. I was at Starbucks. I got a cup of coffee set out in the patio. And two women were talking to one another rather quietly. One woman says, no, 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 don't worry about it. You can just do today what you can do today. There is no sense that you should beat yourself up because you, you know, you've gained weight. And the person was just distraught, crying in tears and everything, just sobbing. And I let them finish, and I just, you know, because I'm a busy buddy, I, I butted in. I said, do you by any chance know of a, a 12-step study group around? And they both looked at me, and I said, you know, like OA? And the other person said, or one of the persons said, yes, we do have a program. It's right over there on another corner. And so I said, wow, that's amazing. What that story was, was a post-bariatric patient, Ruin Y, who had gained all of her weight back and was sobbing because she had gained her weight back with her sponsor. It wasn't just a story about OA. It was my story. Because at that particular point, I had gained two pounds back. And I was not going to become a statistic. Not at all. So I went through the doors of OA. The following Sunday, I was embraced by a greeter. And I thought, whoa, this is right. This feels good. Here I am back at home again. And I'm just kind of sitting around in a circle listening to people. I felt good. But there was a sense of fear in the deep part of my gut. You know that little twang that will hit you every once in a while, bingo, and you'll grab and you'll step. I was full of fear. Fear that I would gain the weight back. Fear that I was not honest. Fear that, I mean, you know, what about my, my who's going to take care of me? Being, I just... I was full of fear. And I said, the only reason, or the only way I know how to work this program, or the only way that has been suggested, that I've never really, really used, was I got a sponsor. So I said, okay, I need a sponsor. And I looked around, looked around, went to meetings, went to Six weeks later, I found a sponsor. And I found a really good sponsor. I found him. I said, I need to work the steps. He said, good. This is what you do. You'll call me at 7.10 every morning. 
not 7-11, 7-10 every morning. And you will read this part of the big book, you'll write about it, and you'll call me. I did that for one year, religiously. Went through the book, went through the steps, and I said, you know, I need to get through these steps right now, and I'm going to work these steps. One, two, three, four, five. I took a week for each step. And I said, thank you so much for getting me through the steps. About 2009, November, about this same time, I visited the Easy Desert Bookstore. And I said to Richard, Richard, do you remember a young girl when you were seated out on the oak bench out front? And Richard said, yes, I, yes, I know that one. Well, uh, and do you remember this husband-wife H&I team from Vegas? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. Yeah, I know those two. Well, they're my sisters. And I said, and they wanted me to say to you, hi, how are you doing? You can imagine my shock when he said, well, if they're your sisters, then I have an order for your dad. I said, what? Yeah, I have an order, an old order. It's back here on the shelf. I, I, I said, w- w- would you mind getting it? So Richard went to the back and he brought out this little plastic bag, dust all over it, had faded thick writing on it. He said, yeah, I've had this bag and your dad and I passed this bag back and forth for years, about 15, 16 years. And I go, oh my gosh. He's here. And I opened the bag and inside are these little silver keychains, the praying hands on one side, and the serenity prayer on the other. And I thought, whoa, this is amazing to be reunited with my dad. You see, my dad had been dead for two years. And I got a sense that my dad and I and Richard converged at that moment. That experience, ladies and gentlemen, is what I experience every single day. That convergence of love and God and awareness. It's the gift of the program. If I knew how to encapsulate it, if I knew how to sell it, if I knew how to, you know, manipulate it, I could, make a, I could do a lot with it. But I can't. It's just a frame of reference. It's just a frame of mind. So, I live in 10, 11, and 12. I live every day in a, uh, a spiritual awareness. And um, my joy today is being of service. Being a sponsor for men who are uh, first-timers, retreads, whatever. And we go through the steps, we go through the big book, we do the reading, we do the writing, and every chance I get, and every time I do that, I have a new awareness of something that I didn't see before. Why? Because the person I am today is not the person I was a week ago. I'm a new person today. And that sense of of an excitement about encountering God 
through you, through us, is just an amazing thing. I often thought that I wouldn't have any stories to tell. I often thought that life would get boring. You know, I heard one sponsor say to me, how do we rise beyond our days and nights? How do we rise beyond our days and nights? Unless we break the chains at the dawn of our understanding, which we fastened around our five o'clock hour. We must take everything that we know, everything that we've experienced about ourselves, and just set it aside and allow God to work within our lives one day at a time, one moment at a time. I don't know of any other way to do it. I don't. I have no secrets. I have no sense of uh, entitlement. Like, uh, you know, I say today that I'm just two years old in OA. I came in 2009. Yeah, I'm just a couple of years old. And the sense that I get today is a joy that I want us all to share. All right, I don't know what time it is. How much time do we have left? Any time at all? Yeah. Huh? 13 minutes. I have 13 minutes? Are you sure I have 13 minutes? Okay, I'm sorry. You see, oh, I forgot to tell you, I'm a bony, bent, blind beggar. And I can't see. It's one of the things that God is removing from my, my you know, abilities. So I rely on listening. And I rely on uh, and a lot of other people to get me around. I mean, I can see somewhat to drive still. But as far as faces, you know, you're all just basically a blur right now. Mm-hmm. So uh, you have to forgive me. Well, I don't have anything more to say, really. I'd like to open it up for questions if we could. Is that okay? <laughs> Any questions at all about the ruin? Why about prayer meditation? Yeah, yeah. It was kind of funny, huh? Uh, the, the, the thing is that when I was living with the brothers praying seven times a day, you know, they hauled you right back in the church. They didn't let you go very long without recentering your thoughts upon God. Recentering your thoughts about, you know, this connection with a spiritual being. And I remember standing around like this, holding my hands in prayer. The abbot came along and knocked him down. He just he wanted to know, what the hell are you doing? I said, well, I'm in the attitude of prayer. He said, no, you're not. You're pious. You're over. No, you're not either. Don't put your hands like that. And I thought, well, if I'm not supposed to act like I'm praying, how will I ever pray? What I've learned is God doesn't care. (laughs) Whether you're seated, whether you're kneeling, whether you're, you know, whatever you're doing. It is this constant dialogue that you have. God, I'm about to do something today. And I would like to pray for the willingness to do it. I would like to pray for the willingness to do it. Remember, step six is the willingness to do something before we actually take, God, please, take away my character defects. Right? Incidentally, I don't believe we get rid of our character defects. Not at all. No, I don't believe we get rid of our character defects. What we do is we we realign them with God's will for us. And how do we know what's God's will for us today? 
How do we know what's God's will for us today? Except that we rely upon our own will. We rely upon our own will. Why? Because we have taken a moment to realign ourselves with what we believe God wants us to do. And I find that generally relates to not being of service for my own needs, but being of service for others. If I'm more of service to others, then I can actually say, I think that's more in God's will for me today. So I pray for that. I pray for that. Yes, ma'am. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So my prayer meditation is, I start in the morning, and I say, God, you know, what is it that you'd like me to do today? It's like I do today. Oh, God, come to my assistance. Oh, Gus, make, you know, make haste to help me. We had a lovely lady in our program, and she passed this past year. And she used the acronym GUS. GUS. And do you know what GUS stands for? God of our understanding? Great universal spirit. Great universal spirit. So I called upon GUS to give me a hand. Great universal spirit. Yes. Did I answer your question at all? Yes, thank you. Thank you, prayer. Meditation. Prayer asking. Meditation listening to God. And how do I know that that I'm getting God's message, it's because I'm quiet. And it's a very small voice that talks to me. Very small voice. Hmm. And then I think about it. And then I act. Thinking is one thing. Action is where our program is, isn't it? Now, that's why I love that tool. Action plan. It got, got us all. It says, what is the action you're going to take today? Which I think is great. You know, gets us out of our head. You know, I've been celibate for 35 years. Not by choice. It just seems to be working out that way. You know? Singleness of heart. So when I think of romanticism, I have been head over heels for another individual. Totally consumed by that other person. So much so where I think they're locked in my mind. And I had to pray to release them by unlocking my, that cell that they were in and allowing them to leave. Because my compulsion, my obsession was, the, was the, you know, the, unhealthy. Totally unhealthy. And remember when we come into a program and we, we say, stick around until we love you? You know, so, you know, until you can love yourself? There's that sense of release, isn't there? I mean, if we always said, okay, I'm meeting you for the first time, and right now we want to know whether we're going to be intimate or not. Wow, that's a lot of stress. But what we do is we say, no, I am, the God in me is acknowledging the God in you. That's what we offer each other. And in that sense of appreciation for who we are, we have a chance to grow. Together. And I think that's where intimacy begins. And the thing about food, you see, I, I, I've been given a gift. Because of the surgery, I am no longer, I have, food is not, I am not, I don't obsess about food. I have to remind myself to eat. And uh, that's just a gift, you know. Thank you, God. 
and uh, I'm the most boring person when it goes to shopping. I go down the same aisle, I pick up the same things, and I'm out of the market within 20 minutes. And I've been doing that for five years now. So there you go. You know, and uh, I just maintain the program that I was taught. I eat the portions that I was taught to eat. I eat in the time frame that I was taught. And I've just been following the program. We had a, a, one of the beautiful things we have in our program is this. It's a knock. Remember how we kind of give ourselves a knock? And this knock, then we all sort of get up and we join hands. And at the monastery, one of the things that we do to begin the office is knock. And we start. We begin. And uh, I, I just know that in these rooms, I have found a greater spirituality than I have found in church, that I found at the monastery. And there are monks that don't go to church. You think, how is that possible? Monks that don't go to church, don't go to mass. What's that all about? What it's about is that they are a service. They're taking care of men who are in the infirmary. They're taking care of the kitchen, providing meals for people. Right? So, there you have it. Uh, service in our, in our organization is a priori. I mean, I, I, I ask God every day, how can I be of service? And uh, that, it's, it, it's good. It's good. Any other questions at all? Huh? Well, thank you for allowing me to be a service.